sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. All right, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful uh, for what we've seen time and again as we've walked through these gospel accounts of the coming of your Son. We celebrate and we rejoice in an incredible truth that you have not left us alone, but you have come to us in the form of Jesus. And so today, as we come to this last gospel, this last sermon in our Advent series, I pray that you would come and be with us, and that you would speak through your word, that you would show us what it means, how it means to live it out. God, you have dignified us by coming to us. You have shown us that you love us, you've shown us mercy, you have shown us grace when what we deserved was wrath. And so we thank you, we praise you, and we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So I hope that all of you had a great Christmas. I hope that you had a good time with your family, that you had fun, uh, that you got to spend time with family and friends, that uh, you were able to eat good food, that you were able to uh, give gifts and receive gifts, and that you were able to worship our Lord. I was thankful to get to do that on the 24th with all of you, uh, to come together and to sing and read of our Savior. And I'm thankful to be here today with you to proclaim God's Word and to, uh, to look at, at John 1 together. But there is one day that I feel like does not get enough credit, or at least enough acknowledgement, and that is December 26th. It's not because it's good, it's because it's a huge bummer. 
Nobody ever talks about it, but I am convinced that December 26th is a huge bummer. It always has been, to me at least. I remember uh, as a kid, you wake up on Christmas Day and you look at the tree and it's beautiful and it's shining and it's bright and the ornaments are up there and it represents all this good about Christmas, all this exciting and joyful about Christmas. And then you wake up on December 26th and it just looks like a chore that you have to do. Um, same thing with all the lights and the decorations. While they're, they're beautiful the day before, they are a bummer on the 26th. Um, the candy that you eat, I'm convinced that candy tastes three times better on Christmas. On the 26th, I open up the cupboard and start, you know, if I start eating the candy, um, it makes me feel gross on the 26th. To be clear, it doesn't stop me, uh, but it does make me feel gross. And, I mean, all of that makes sense, because Christmas is a season of anticipation where we look forward to what's to come. I mean, from Thanksgiving, well, some of you start celebrating Halloween, and you need to repent of that, but that's a different, that's a different story. But, you know, for weeks, regardless, we celebrate uh, Christmas. We get out, we break out the calendar with a countdown on it, you know, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, Christmas is here. And so we, we celebrate uh, Christmas over a period of time. And so when it comes, it feels like it's over. And so it, it feels kind of depressing when you wake up on the 26th and you know that it is going to be 364 days until Christmas comes again. And, of course, we mirror that as we uh, go through our Advent series each year. Annually, we go through uh, different um, series of Advent, and we anticipate and we reflect on what it means to await our coming Savior. And so we anticipate uh, Christmas through our Advent series. And so I have to confess to you that preaching an Advent sermon after Christmas feels a little bit like waking up on December 26th. Um, but that's the negative way of looking at it. There is a positive way. Because normally when we look forward to uh, the Christmas message through, through Advent, we are anticipating. We're looking forward. We're looking beyond where we're at right now. We're looking beyond to where Christmas is. But we get the opportunity today to look back on Christmas, right? Because our mental calendar kind of flips after Christmas, and whereas we might be looking forward to the coming of our Savior, now we begin to reflect on that. We begin to look back on it. We put a different perspective on as we look at what it means that Jesus came to us. And so I cannot think of a better book. I, I love how this worked out. I cannot think of a better passage uh, to reflect on uh, the coming of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know the Gospel of John is very different than the first three. You know, Matthew begins by, by emphasizing uh, Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and the arrival of a Savior. And Mark begins by Jesus preaching the good news of the kingdom. Uh, Luke emphasizes the coming of the Son of God, but they all begin at Jesus' coming. They all begin when he becomes a man. But John... While the first three are reflecting on or anticipating, reflecting on what Jesus said and did, John is reflecting on who Jesus was. And so John goes back way, way 
way back. He doesn't begin at the birth of Jesus, but he begins at the beginning, like capital B, beginning of the whole thing, and tells us some incredible truths about Jesus. I find the most impressive and the most incredible for opening 18 verses to be one sentence that's found in verse 14. It's this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I find that statement to be incredibly profound. More profound. If you, if you locked me in a room with 24 hours and a notebook and said, write down one sentence. You have one shot to make a statement more profound than that. I could not do it. No chance. This is incredibly profound. So I want us to reflect on this truth that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want us to reflect on what that means. So what we'll do is we'll understand what that means, what the the facts are, what this passage in John 1 from context is saying when it says the word became flesh and then I want us to reflect on what that means and how we live that truth out. So what does it mean that the word became flesh? Well to answer that question I think the first question we have to answer is what does it mean to call Jesus the word? What does it mean that Jesus is the word? Well here in John 1 Uh, I believe there is at least three ways that we can see Jesus is the word. There are probably 10 different ways out here today, you know, that we interpret what John means when he says that Jesus is the word. But I believe that there are three, at least, legitimate ways that Jesus is the word based on John 1 here in this context. So what does it mean that Jesus is the word? Well, first means that Jesus is God's plan for redemption. So, famously, the word that's translated word here in our English version uh, is logos. I say that because it's probably a word you've heard at some point. And that word is actually pretty flexible in Greek. It's usually, you know, used in some different ways. But one of the most common ways that Greek writers would have used uh, logos to refer to something would be like the grand scheme of things or the big picture, or the rationale, or even like the logic behind things. That's where we get our word logic from, by the way, is logos. We get it from uh, logos. So we see, I think, that John is saying that Jesus is God's divine plan. Jesus is the plan, the rationale, the logic behind God's plan for redemption. When you look through the Bible, you begin Genesis, you go to Revelation, what is clear is that God is doing something. You look throughout the Old Testament, and you might wonder exactly what that may be, because you can tell there's a narrative building, and there is something, being, there's something directing us towards uh, what God is up to. In Jesus, we find out what that is. His great plan for redemption is uncovered. Just as it says that all those who believed in his name, verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. God sent Christ to be our Savior. He is the divine plan for redemption. He is 
uh, not a secondary resort. It's not just a response like, oh, we got to figure something out here. He is eternally God's blueprint to save us from our sin. He is God's divine plan for redemption. Furthermore, what is clear from this passage and what I think is meant by calling Jesus the Word is that Jesus is the creator of everything. When John begins his gospel in 1-1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And when he says in the beginning was the Word, it's obviously meant to be a kind of callback meant to remind us of how the entire scriptures opened up, how the whole Bible opened up in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when you hear the phrase, in the beginning, and it sounds familiar, I believe that's intentional. It's meant to call us back to Genesis 1.1 and the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. But to see the link between Jesus being the Word, Jesus being the Creator, we have to understand how did God create the world? We say that God created the world by speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. So as God spoke and the world was created, we see, too, Jesus being the Word is the creator of everything. And if that line of thinking is not clear enough for you, John makes it abundantly clear in verse 3 when he says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we see that Jesus has an exalted status. He is the creator. And at this point, at this point, we have to start saying, who is Jesus? He cannot be the man that just merely appeared out of nowhere and begins preaching the kingdom of God. He can't just be another prophet. He can't just be another person. No, if we take John seriously and we hear him say that he made all things that he is the word. We have to say that he is more than just the prophet. We cannot say, if we take John seriously, that the Christmas story began in the manger. We can't say that that is where Jesus' um, existence began, but we know that he existed long before. And we know that this idea, the, the idea of creation, is one that is given only to God. And so we have to grapple with that. If God is the creator of everything, then if Jesus created everything, the only way that we can reconcile those two things is to say that Jesus is God. He is God himself. And again, if that is not clear, if that line of logic is not clear, John clarifies that for us in one where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus is the creator God. He is uh, fully God. He is, um, he is the Word. So the last thing we see, we see first that Jesus is God's plan for redemption, and Jesus is the creator of everything. The last way that we see Jesus is the Word is that uh, Jesus is God's self-revelation, or he's an utterance of God. He is meant to show us what God is like, is how God reveals himself to us. And I think this is the way we would normally interpret this. I think this is the way we're inclined to, the way we think as uh, Americans, uh, Westerners. I think we would normally think this way, that Jesus is meant to show us, is meant to communicate to us what God is like. He is the Word of God. That's made clear to us in verse 18, where it says, 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Um, And to be honest with you, that verse is about as clear as mud. Um, But I think we can start to scrape the layers back, and we we take it piece by piece, and I think we can understand it. First thing John says in, in 118 is that no one has ever seen God. And that's true. That's what Jesus himself says in, uh, in John 4 when he's speaking to the woman at the well. He says that God is spirit. And so we understand that God is completely different than us. He is completely other than us. He is spirit. And as such, as being spirit, uh, with our carnal minds, our carnal eyes, we're not able to detect God in the world. No one has ever seen God. So to understand him, we need someone to make him known. The only God who is at the Father's side has made, God has made the Father known. So in other words, God reveals himself to us through Jesus. Jesus being fully God and taking on flesh, being fully man, is meant to bridge the gap between God and us, to make what is otherwise incomprehensible, ununderstandable, Uh, completely understandable to us. Jesus is meant to reveal God to us, to show us what God is like. And so, when we put all this together, we may be tempted to say, now what? This This isn't new information based on what we've seen so far. This is uh, what we've been talking about all Advent series. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God who became flesh, who was God's eternal plan of redemption, who is the creator of everything, who has come to reveal God to us. That is not new to us based on uh, what we have heard so far. And just like when we wake up on the 26th, we might be tempted to yawn and say, that is a very interesting truth, but now what? What do I do with this? Well, since we're reflecting today, and we're looking back, I want to ask, what does it mean to live after the Word became flesh? What does it mean to live in light of Jesus' coming to us and dwelling among us? It's a great and profound truth that alters everything about us. We cannot look at this and yawn. We cannot be bored by this. We can say that it's incredible. We can say that it's amazing. But we cannot look at the truth that the word of God became flesh and yawn. We live lives that are completely altered by this. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is to give you five meditations on what it means to live after the word became flesh. Again, drawn from John 1. And if meditation sounds a little bit new agey to you um, or weird, then just consider it five action points, five ways that we live in light of the fact that Jesus is the Word made flesh. So the first thing we see is that we bear witness, because the Word became flesh, we bear witness to the greatest event in history. Many incredible things have happened throughout history. I mean, you think about the rise and fall of Rome, 
You think about the conquest of Genghis Khan, the invention of the printing press, or the invention of the assembly line, or you think about uh, the, the discovery of the new world or the founding of America. I mean, you could put all of those things together, and they are like a joke in importance compared to the fact that God himself became a man. That is an incredible truth. It is one of the most incredible truths of all of Scripture. In fact, some would even say that it is the most hard thing to believe in the Bible. Uh, In fact, J.I. Packer uh, makes this very point in Knowing God. I want to read you a little bit of a section. It's a little bit long, but it's worth reading the whole thing. Uh, But I, I want to read you what he says in Knowing God. The real difficulty... The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all. It does not lie in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determinate human destiny the second representative head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly divine as he was human. Here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fan fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. And I think I tend to agree with Packer, because the more I reflect on this idea, the more profound it becomes. Because normally we like to have a division, a clear-cut division even now, between God and man. The two can't come together. But if we believe John's testimony, that is shattered. Because God came to dwell among us, truly dwell among us as a true man, just like you and me. It stretches us. It requires our imagination and our faith. It requires us to look at this bold truth with faith. But this great truth, bound up in this great truth, is the message of our salvation. The reality that God became flesh is the way that we are saved from our sins. And as such, we have the duty and the privilege of proclaiming this to our friends and our neighbors. This is the greatest truth the world has ever known. And we bear witness to that to our friends and neighbors. If this is true, the urgency and the importance of this cannot be understated. We owe it to those we love to proclaim the unimaginable truth that God became flesh to save us, to save us, to come among us, to dwell among us, and to save us. So, 
First thing we see, the first meditation here is that because the word became flesh, we bear witness to the greatest event in history. Second meditation is that because the word became flesh, we celebrate the solution to our greatest problem. We celebrate the solution to our greatest problem. So celebrating is something that we have down pat at Christmas. I don't know about you, I had three, four Christmases, I think, you know, where you, you know, like Christmas events, I guess. And so some of you probably have very many. We celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas in the way we celebrate no other holiday. You know, as incredible as Easter is, we, we don't uh, get the presents out. We don't get uh, all the lights out. We may, you know, throw some Easter eggs around and, uh, and eat a little bit of chocolate, but we don't celebrate it the way we do Christmas. Uh, we don't celebrate anything else the way that we do the time where God became flesh, but we celebrate it for about five weeks. We go hard in the celebration for about five weeks, and then it is a remote reality that we don't think about very often for 11 months of the year. But the message of the incarnation is also a January through November message. The fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us is a cause for celebration throughout the year. I don't minimize uh, again, the struggles and the difficulties that we go through, that you go through, because they are real. But even in the midst of those difficulties and challenges, we have the privilege to celebrate the truth that God became flesh to save us from our sins. We have the solution to our greatest need because God came to dwell among us. So, we bear witness to the greatest event in history. And we celebrate the solution to our greatest problem. Number three, because the word became flesh, we imitate Christ's example of humility and service. We imitate Christ's example of humility and service. So, I think this is something we know. I think we know that it took a lot of humility and service for Christ to come from heaven to earth to serve us, to uh, save us from our sins. I think that's something that we know very well, but I, I want it to be something that we feel. I think it's hard for me to feel the depths of humility that it took for Christ to leave heaven and to come to earth and to uh, be born as a small child and to live a life and to be rejected and to be put to death. I want to feel that in my bones. If you want to, to get this, this tiniest inkling, I, I mean the tiniest inkling of it, uh, of what it means to have uh, humility and service, um, I would say actually get a pet. Um, I know most of you are thinking get a child, but... Uh, but I would say get a pet because that's what I have at the moment. Um, most of you know I, I have a cat, and I, I'm not going to tell the story that all of you know. Um, it's that, we're going to save that one. Uh, this, is, this is not time for that one. But one of the most humbling experiences is cleaning out that cat's litter box while he, uh, you know, you're bending over, cleaning it out, and you look up, and he's just staring at you with those cold, dead cat eyes and just blinking, uh, just looking right at you as you clean up his mess. Um, well, I believe that is the tiniest, the tiniest sliver 
of what it looked like for God to leave the glory of heaven to come and dwell among us in our sin-sick, disgusting, dingy world and to die for us. In fact, Paul makes this exact point in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 3 through 7, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Paul considers the very fact that Jesus was born in the likeness of men to be an act of humility and service. And Paul is convinced that the longer we stare at that, the longer we let that sink into our bones, the more we're going to be inclined to do the same thing. And so we do not have the ability to act in pride towards our fellow man. We acted humility and service to one another. We, when we think about going to a jail or to a rehab clinic, it's not like we're climbing down the ladder to go meet them. Because if we consider how far Christ came to serve us, we know we're walking across a flat plain to go serve our neighbor. We're not too proud to serve one another here. There, we, we do not limit ourselves by saying, by thinking at least, I don't believe we'd ever say it, I'm too good to do that. I, I've got too much uh, gifting in this other area, so I, I am not worried about that at all. Uh, we're not too proud to, to, to change diapers. We're not too proud to, to look foolish. We, are, uh, we give ourselves over to one another as we imitate. We imitate Christ's example of humility and service. So that's the third meditation on what it means to live after the Word became flesh. But the fourth, the fourth is because the, because the Word became flesh, we nurture the world Christ entered. And I might be stretching just a bit here, just a bit. I'll admit it before I get going on this. But when we see that Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, he did it all the way, right? He visited our house, so to speak. He came among us, all of us. He came and he ate our food. He walked our roads. He wore our clothes. He shopped from our vendors. He lived in, in human-made houses, so Christ came to dwell among us, to live among us. He came to live in our world, to live among us. So what we see is that we cannot, we cannot imagine that the only thing that matters is what's spiritual. Because Christ came to live among us and to dignify this world. If we imagine that the only thing that matters is spiritual, we denigrate what Christ came and dignified. I imagine that in Nazareth, there was never shoddy work done at Christ's carpenter shop. I imagine that he improved the world with every strike of his hammer. And so, for you, whatever you do, maybe you're blue collar, maybe you're white collar, Maybe you have bought into the lie that what you do doesn't matter, but Christ has shown that this world matters. He came and he dwelt 
among us. What you do, whether you're paid for it, whether you're not, whether you're a mom or a dad, whether you're single, uh, whether you're retired, what you do matters. So I encourage you to nurture the world around you. Make those around you better. Care for those among you. Work for the good of one another. Do what you do and do it well because Christ has entered our world. Christ entered our world and showed that it matters. So, that's our fourth meditation. And the final one, number five, is because the word became flesh, we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. We know in the first coming that Christ came and that he dwelled with us. In the second coming, we look forward to the same. We look forward to living with Christ forever. He came and he walked among us. The very light of the world was present among us. We long for the time where there will be no sun, but he himself will be our light. He will be forever with us, and he will wipe away all of the effects of sin that still linger among us. We know that Christ is coming to complete what he began. He brought salvation into the world with his first coming. He dignified our world. He he dwelled among us, but he's coming to complete that, where the separation between God and man will forever be erased, and we will forever be with our Lord. And so, as we enter the new year, I want to be sure that we anticipate the second coming of Christ. Just as we rejoice and we celebrate by looking back on his first coming, we anticipate and look forward to his second coming, the day when he sets all things right. So ultimately, I don't want us to have a December 26th feeling about the incarnation. I don't want us to yawn at the truth that God became flesh. Because if that is right, if that is true, then it fundamentally alters our lives. We live in light of the greatest truth that has ever been. That Christ came to this earth to save sinners. And that by faith he gives us the right to become children of God. And so in light of that, I want to encourage you, me, all of us together to seek to live out the truth, live in light of the truth that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray. Father, we have sang with grateful hearts this morning of what you've done in our world. We pray with anticipation for what you will do We believe if if you came first, you came once, that you'll come again. And so we look forward to that day of your coming. God, you have spoken so much in the incarnation. And as we've gathered for just a few minutes to look back on it today, I know that we've barely scratched the surface. So I pray that you would continue to reveal that to us more and more. And God, I pray, I pray that you would send us out to declare this message that you have come to rescue sinners. You are the hero that's come to rescue the villains. And I pray that we would let that truth soak deeply and richly into our hearts. God, we thank you for this all. We pray for it all in the name of Christ. Amen.